Hello and welcome to a very special episode of Bedtime Stories for the End of the World. I'm your host, Eleanor Penny, coming to you with a little update on what we've been doing this past year. I'm very excited to say that we've been working with the good people of Studio Press to turn this podcast into a beautiful book, illustrated by the internationally acclaimed artist Inquisitive. Just search Bedtime Stories for the End of the World and you can't go wrong. We actually went straight to number one in the Amazon Poetry Charts in just 24 hours of pre-release, so thank you to everyone who bags a copy early. You are truly the best of us. So what's the book about, I Hear You Cry? Well, we have asked six of the UK's best and brightest poets to rewrite a traditional story of their choosing. A story they'd want to preserve from floods, from fires, from human forgetfulness, from disasters of all kinds. A story they'd want to seal away in the nuclear bunker for future generations to enjoy. Those poets are Inua Ellams, Joelle Taylor, Will Harris, Malika Booker, Kaya Chingonyi and Helen Mort. If you'd like a sneak preview of the poems, well, you're in exactly the right place. Because today we've brought together some of the writers to read a few extracts from their work. So settle in as we bring you stories of unborn children haunting the living, bare brides taken from their parents' houses by night, a young girl tangling with a sinister blue-bearded tyrant, and ancient Greek stories restaged in today's refugee camps and in the furthest flung reaches of outer space. Without further ado, let's go over to our first poet. She didn't want to go, but she's a girl. She had no voice. I'm joined now by Helen Mort, who's a poet and novelist based in Sheffield. She's the author of two highly praised collections, Division Street and No Map Could Show Them. And her first novel, Black Car Burning, was released just last year. Welcome, Helen. Hi, thank you. Tell us about the story that you've chosen. So I chose a Norwegian fairy tale called East of the Sun and West of the Moon, which I think is a really mesmerising story. It's very hard to condense the plot into just a few minutes, but it's a kind of a, it's a quest for a lost husband, I guess. And um, it's got a lot of shape shifting in it. And it's it's a real adventure narrative, um, which really attracted me to it. Um, and it's about a, a, a girl who's married to a white bear who changes shape at night and then there's a curse which she so she has to she has to break the curse and follow him and break the spell and there's a happy ending uh, right at the end of it as well yes we absolutely love a good rip-roaring tale of curses and transformations and all that good stuff here on bedtime stories Uh, could you read us a sample so i'm gonna read from a couple of sections of this piece um i i I decided to uh put some little sort of prose parts in it that are the voice of the the girl the girl who goes and marries the white bear in the voice of her mother so she tells the story so i'm going to read something in her voice first and then the the voice of the bear himself. The mother. Nobody's interested in mothers. We're in the background making hot tea and bread. But this is my story too, my life. And it starts like this. Once a white bear approached a poor peasant, asked for his prettiest youngest daughter in return for cash. Not just any daughter, my child. She didn't want to go, but she's a girl. She had no voice. And my husband said we needed the money. I stood in the doorway and became liquid, became a river of grief. The bear whisked her away to his castle. 
I watched their shapes becoming distant stars. I imagined her life with him. At night, he would take off his bare form and come to her bed as a man, but the darkness meant she never saw him. I'd love to know how a bear thinks, what a bear feels. The White Bear I'm cursed into this shape, and now I curse the blood diamonds of my teeth, the musk of my scraggy fur, curse the muscles underneath, withering, curse my death cudgel paws, knives of my claws, curse the memory of seal fat, and how at sunset a rock can look blubbery as a seal. Curse the rocky outcrops of hunger, how hunger tightens like a vice, and curse the shifting, splintering multitudes of ice, how the world is always softening under me. Curse the men who drank and drank and drank from the lip of the earth, and yet left more water, less solid ground. Curse the surfaces I try to walk on, unsteady, waiting to break through, waiting to break out of this rigid skin. Thank you so much. That was, that was really hypnotising. So what was it that attracted you to this story in the first place? I think there were quite a few elements that I was interested in. I guess these kinds of fairy tales and uh, folk stories persist and endure because they've got some really universal elements in them but I was also thinking about updating the story for for today and what's relevant today and at this at the outset well it's got um I read an extract which had the uh, the white bear in it the polar bear and I was thinking about polar bears at the moment as a kind of emblem of of the the destruction that we've kind of caused in in, in terms of um, climate emergency and issues around climate crisis so the white bear was a very powerful figure I guess uh, that I wanted to try and write about a little bit but mostly it was um, I was interested in two characters who aren't in the main part of the story, the mother and the the wicked stepmother. There's always a wicked stepmother in fairy tales, right? There has to be. Um, <laughs> and I'm both a mother and a stepmother, and I I, I think stepmoms get a really bad bad rep in um, in fairy tales. Often they don't have the best record. So I wanted to explore that 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 kind of role. And I also um, was very interested in the story of the mother because in the original story she's kind of there. Um, she loses her daughter um, she, her daughter's taken away to go and live with the white bear and um, and yet she doesn't really speak and I thought blimey as a mother I'd be so um, I'd be so central to this 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 tale I'd be so preoccupied uh, by what was going on and I, I just wanted to let her speak I suppose so I wanted to maybe shift the focus of the story a little bit and bring the mum and the stepmum in because I thought it would be fun to do that. What was it like breathing life into these marginalised type characters? Those characters we're trained to think of as threatening or scary or evil in some way, you know, the wild beast or the conniving stepmother. Um, I really enjoyed it. I, I, I loved um, trying to switch between the contemporary and the historical and particularly that I enjoyed writing the mother because in the original story she's she's trouble she she helps the the young girl to to break 
part of the curse and to see her husband as a as a man rather than as a bear. So she's actually she's got quite a pivotal role in the story. And I imagined her as very wise and very all seeing and that she would be quietly in the background getting on with things. But actually that she'd um, that she'd have a lot to say for herself. So I really enjoyed that. Um, and I just it's so much fun to try and write in the voice of an animal as well and to try and imagine yourself as a bear you know the way that a bear moves through the world the things that it sees the way it relates to its environment so that was that was that was great too what's your take on the central protagonist this young girl who often in traditional tellings doesn't have that much agency or choice yeah, I, that, I probably should have said, actually, that, that that was something else that I got really interested in in this story, uh, because the girl is quite helpless in, in all of this. She gets taken from her parents' house and betrothed to this, this bear. Uh, I mean... I'm not sure I'd be completely happy with that if if that happened <laughs> on a, a sort of random Thursday. Um, off you go. Here's your new husband. Um, he's a bear, by the way. And um, I, I I wanted her to have, I wanted to show that lack of agency and how unfair that was. Um, but also there the were elements in it that that um, that I thought might be surprising to a maybe to a, a modern audience. So um, at the end of the story, it, there is a happy ending, um, as I said, but it's all to do with it. It all hinges on um, her being good at housework, basically. Um, <laughs> so that, that, that's what that's that's what wins the day for her is her um, is her domestic uh, abilities. And I, and I thought, Oh no, really? Um, but, I, but I also enjoyed exploring that in the story. I couldn't change the the details of the story, and obviously that is. I thought, well, maybe that that's in, that's important as well. But I thought it would be interesting in a kind of modern context, maybe. Helen, I can't wait to see your story out there in the wild. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. The cage rattled. The rattle echoed through the warehouse. But the mangy boy, he wasn't scared. I'm joined now by Will Harris, who's a writer and poet based in London. He's the writer of titles including Mixed Race Superman and All This Is Implied, and a fellow of the Complete Works 3. His first full collection, Rendang, has been shortlisted for a forward prize. Will, welcome. Hello, hi. Hi, Elena. So tell us what story you chose to rewrite. I chose to rewrite the story of uh, Philoctetes, or Philoctetes, I'm not really sure how you pronounce it, but it was like 2,000 years ago, so it probably doesn't matter, um, <laughs> who was this soldier during the Trojan War, this like 10-year-long war, war between the Greeks and the Trojans, it was like going on, and he was uh, going to fight and with some other soldiers, including Odysseus, famous warrior, and they stopped in an island, and he was bitten by a snake in one telling at least and got this like horrible wound that really like smelt and was really kind of gross essentially and so he was abandoned on this island and everyone and all the other soldiers went on to fight in the Trojan War but then it turned out there was this prophecy that they needed uh, Philoctetes to win the war because he was an incredible archer he had this bow that was given to him by Hercules uh, when Hercules died and it was this bow which like almost which like never missed its target. So Odysseus had to come back to this island and try and persuade a, you know, understandably pretty angry uh, Philoctetes to come and come back and fight this war with him. And he had with him 
uh, the son of Achilles, Neoptolemus. So the story that you've chosen comes from this vast cornucopia of different stories in these epic Greek poems, the Iliad and the Odyssey, and they track Achilles and Odysseus and the Trojan War and all of these kinds of stories that have become pretty familiar to us. What was it in particular about this Philoctetes side quest that drew you to it? I guess what I liked about this story is that it's, yeah, it's a very uh, kind of a small little kind of spin-off from this like massive story of this huge war. And that's kind of what's often exciting about the Odyssey or, or just myth in general, that you have this like huge overarching battle, but then you have these like very important like mini struggles within it. And for me, the big, the, the struggle that I connected with was of Philoctetes, was this person who has this amazing gift with a bow and arrow, but also has this wound and has to get over this sense of anger and mistrust and, you know, and this sense of having been abandoned in order to, to rejoin this, this, this other, this larger conflict. Well, I'd love it if you could read a little bit for us. Yeah, I'll read uh, from the opening. So in my telling, it's called Moon Station 5. I'll read the first chunk, which is set on day 3702. Interviewer. Thank you for agreeing to this interview later. It would be helpful if you could start uh, by telling us when you first encountered him on Moon Station 5. Could you sense that he was different? Later. I heard him first. The sound of one foot dragging on concrete, one foot slightly behind the other, like a wounded lion, that's what I thought. Like a lion being led back to the zoo, except he didn't look like a lion. He looked kind of mangy, just a boy. I wasn't impressed. He waded into our world of war, of training for war. He was wearing a dirty tracksuit, his backpack clutched to his chest, face hidden by a ridiculous beanie. It was meant to be an honour, training here. The instructor watched on. Jewel kicked the ball to me. I passed it. A tackle came in. Someone shanked it wide. The cage rattled. The rattle echoed through the warehouse. Like the way you smell pizza before the doorbell rings. They caught his scent. Jewel was first to react. What have we got here? He did smell bad, the new boy. Like sliced ham, mouldy bread, sweaty boxes, each bad smell hiding something worse. He was scratching at his hand. I thought of a lion again, or of a small cat licking its injured paw. Everyone lined up to rattle the cage. Jewel howled. He looks as rank as he smells. The others howled, too. He clutched his backpack to his chest as he came past, like it was the only thing that kept him upright. The instructor watched on. The cage rattled. The rattle echoed through the warehouse. But the mangy boy, he wasn't scared. Interviewer. Were you aware of the weapon at the time? That's what people want to know. When did you see the weapon? Later. Not then, but there was something different in him, or he brought difference with him. The stars turned above us. Thank you, Will. That was beautiful. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you chose to set it in this futuristic sci-fi type setting? Well, I guess uh, probably the main reason was that I thought it was cooler. I think I just wanted to set something in the future. I'd been watching a lot of, you know, kind of dystopian, you know, sci-fi films. And it seemed kind of like the right place. Also, this context of this like huge war happening somewhere else, somewhere far away. 
Um, there's also the thing in sci-fi is that you can kind of invent your own rules. Um, or you, you know, it's like a, you know, you have to create your own world, right? Yeah. If we're not bound by the strictures of reality, like you may as well kind of free will and have fun with it. Right. So talk to me a little bit about the school slash training camp theme because that's something that you very much brought to the table that I don't think Homer had in mind so what was the idea behind that yeah I I guess I was thinking about how I could translate this idea of a war the Trojan War 10-year war to um, another context without really making it about the war because the story happens away from the conflict and so I thought a training camp made sense Um, originally I actually was going to try and make it a sports I like a sports contest because I was like, oh, maybe war's kind of boring. But it really kind of needed some element of like higher stakes to make it make sense. But yeah. And it was a big part of Greek culture, I guess, you know, these these contests like the Olympics. What, so what do you want people to take away from the struggle of the central character who is struggling on one hand with this devastating wound, but also has these you know, mythic level talents? I guess this idea that uh, a hero is not a perfect person, but actually is defined almost by having an amazing gift, but also having a kind of horrible, debilitating <laughs> um, wound or whatever as well, that the two things coexist. And actually, the, he- the heroic aspect comes from finding a way to, uh, to live with both of those things, to make them both work for you. So at the beginning he's kind of withdrawn and he doesn't really, you know, he, 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 yeah, he, he kind of hates himself or he sees what other people see in him, which is only this kind of wound and this like, this, this kind of outcast. Um, but it's about like learning to accept both those sides of yourself, which I feel like is true of a lot of um, like superheroes as well, which like drew me to comics when I was ill and like superhero films. The idea that all the good heroes often have are, are interesting, not because of their, their abilities but because of their um their yeah the things that hold them back as well i couldn't agree more thank you so much well it was great to talk to you thank you elena call me goblin little rumple still skin better yet call me devil spawn I'm joined now by Malaika Booker, who's a British poet and theatre maker of Guyanese and Grenadian parentage and the founder of the writers' collective Malaika's Poetry Kitchen. She's the author of acclaimed poetry collections Breadfruit and Pepperseed, and this year she received a Chumley Award for Outstanding Contribution to Poetry. Malaika, welcome. Hi, hi. So what story have you chosen to rewrite for us? Um, I've sh- I've chosen to rewrite the story of the Dwen. It's a Eastern Caribbean folklore um, tale that's told to young people, particularly children, a cautionary tale in countries like Trinidad and Grenada. Could you tell us a little bit more about what that cautionary tale contains? So the Dwen is, are like ghosts of babies who passed away close to birth or very young. And it's said that they go into, because their souls are so pure, they go into a land of limbo and they get lonely and they want people to play with. So they come back to the world, to our world and call, they try to find out children's names and call their names and lure them away. So you find when children get lost or go missing, there's this thing that the Dwen visited and 
took those children away. Um, so it's a really interesting thing. And and, and um, I found it interesting when I came over to England and people would say, oh, she has an invisible friend. Because I'd think, is it an invisible friend or is it Dwem? That's amazing. That's sort of genuine chills down the spine of like such a familiar character of like my childhood is suddenly thrown into this kind of terrifying new light. So I'd love it if you could read us a little extract, please. Okay. Dwen Baby. When I first woke up, I remembered nothing. Then I registered an emptiness in the space next to me. I had never not felt my brother's presence and so began to call for him. Brother, where are you? I tried speaking and speaking, but he would not answer with his body or his thoughts. Then I suddenly knew I was dead. I was in the space between nighttime spice and morning dew. I was in the limbo place between life and death. I remember the way that I kept reaching out for my brother in this strange space, but he was missing. I tried speaking over and over, but he would not answer my calls. Brother, where are you? This limbo space is weird and I need you here with me. I awake into a curdled fog spread around like custard. I awake to the stench of fish gills and touch of gritty salted air. The breeze feels like millions of sharp teeth, little fish nibbling my dead skin. This stagnant, cavernous place where ropes crisscross the ceiling, filled in with a musky dusk. Here, spider's webs brush skin like damp, cold, wispy mist. Bats hang from the ceiling ropes, hairy, ugly beast. And hanging beside them, I squint at rows of grotesque toddlers, feet turned backwards, flat plate faces with eyes but no lips and a mushroom hat jammed fast onto their heads. My fear becomes crawling crabs, claws pinching the insides of my belly. I watch them swing, then realize I am hanging too, so I must be like them. How we hang there in sleep like soldiers, then a tumble down and go. How we drag, drag our backward feet on the crispy earth as we walk, feet shuffling like hard boards scraping crispy leaves. In this world of in-between, this world of dead babies, this limbo world under the silk cotton tree. I soon realize I'd become a ghostly being a warning parents give to their children. I become a Dwen, and there are many different versions of me around the world, using different names. Call me Goblin, Little Rumpelstiltskin, call me Invisible Friend, call me Potbellied, Child Ghost, better yet, call me Badmine, call me Jino, Pie Piper, call me Invisible Friend, call me Bogeyman, better yet, call me Devil Spawn. No, I am the Dwen who whispers kids' names, then lures them astray. Thank you. That was beautifully read. Do you remember the first time you heard about these stories? Yes, I do. 
my grandmother used to tell us stories on the back stairs of our house in Guyana when I was growing up. And so she would, she would, you know, it, it would be like, we'd be out on the back stairs, imagine a Caribbean night, it's quite heated with a cool breeze. And my grandmother would start off with really ordinary tales. And by the end, she would get to the scary ones. Um, and then she'd be like, good night. And we'd have to make our way into the house, to our beds, really, really scared. What drew you to this story when you were thinking about what tale you wanted to rewrite? Um, I I love this story and I and I and I you know I wanted to I wanted to contribute a Caribbean tale. I wanted to contribute one of the because we tell such good tales and I thought as well, you know, um this whole thing with the invisible friend and children talking to what the adults can't see and and this whole notion of Dwen that this child this this you know this child who's died and is in limbo has come back to get friends and needs to learn this name and there's a whole thing in Caribbean culture with ghosts and names and the calling of names and not answering your names in sleep um and the power that the the person, the ghost has because it has your names. And I've always been attracted to that and fascinated that by that, I'm, 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 I suppose. This this thing that everyone calls you, this everyday thing, can be something dangerous in, in someone's mouth from the other world, from the other side. So why did you choose to give voice to this character who's a figure of fear sometimes, of suspicion, a traditional monster, if you like? I wanted to kind of understand or think about how this monster would, op- or, well, yeah, the Dwen, I, 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 I dread to say monster because I think it's the, the innocence of the baby, although they're monstrous looking and really ghost-like, but it is a monster indeed. And I think that's the kind of um, ambiguity with it, that it's a, it's a baby who's innocent who, or a toddler who's, who's died early, but then it, it, it's, coming and luring children away and it looks so grotesque. Um, I wanted to understand how it would operate in modern day society. Um, And I also wanted to understand the motivation for being, um, for coming back to the world to lure people away, because I thought, well, if you're in a world of Dwens and there are other Dwens as well, why can't you play with them? So I wanted to explore th- this question that always came up in my mind. Why come to steal us away? Why don't you go and play with other Dwens? Um, and so being a storyteller, it, it just gave me a space to explore that and to explore grief and loss and an explanation of, of death, you know. So the, the, the way I explored it was that these were twin brothers in in their in the mother's womb and one survives and one doesn't in your retelling people's names have this incredible power is that in the original myth the importance of names or is that something that you brought to it it's something that i brought to it it's um usually um the tale is not as long as i've i've kind of expanded it to be the tale is usually told you know that um it's kind of like a, a, a cautionary anecdote in a way um, that, you know, don't talk to strangers. The Dwen comes and lures children away. Beware of anybody calling your name. But I realized that, um, you know, there's this thing in the Caribbean as well where um, it's said that sometimes your close relatives, are, as they're passing away, become scared and don't want to go on their own. So they come, they go, get into like the husband's 
or their daughters or their granddaughters, their favorite person's dreams and call your name to lure you to the other side with them so that you can go with them. And the whole idea is not to answer them um, when they call your name, but to, to kind of put your hand on the Bible and say the 23rd Psalm or the 25th Psalm or to rebuke them, to say, get away from me. I'm, I'm not or or to or to cajole them to go, you know, say, you know, you've got your own journey. I can't follow you. Yeah, there are so many layers in your story, exploring grief and family and childhood and the notion of the unseen. And I cannot wait until it is out there in the wild world, October 15th. Thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you. Thank you very much. I really enjoyed speaking about this. This is, yeah, this is the first time I'm speaking about it and also reading it aloud. So it's been quite fascinating to revisit it and quite gorgeous to kind of read it and try and get into the Duen. <laughs> Martha was an invisible girl. Sometimes she wondered if she was there at all. I'm joined now by Joelle Taylor, who's an award-winning poet and playwright who's been touring the world with her latest collection, Songs My Enemy Taught Me. And she's just putting the finishing touches on a book of short stories called The Night Alphabet. And her next poetry collection, The Butterfly Fist, will be forthcoming in 2021. Joelle, how are you doing? I'm doing very well, Eleanor. Oh, it's wonderful to have you back. So tell us about what story you've chosen. Um, well, I had a good long think about the kind of stories that I want to save come the end of the world. And I, I just wanted to cover something that was very traditional that a lot of kids get to listen to in primary school and had a huge effect on me. So I chose Bluebeard, the legend of Bluebeard, but to update it to the 21st century. Could you give us a little clue as to what Bluebeard is about? Well, Bluebeard, as I recall it from school, is a story which is a, a cautionary tale for young girls and women. It's about obedience, it's about warning against curiosity, but it's also a very strong feminist tract, even in its original form, which is essentially about a young girl from a poor background who is enticed to marry this rich guy called Bluebeard. Um, and she does get married to him and she's in this big castle with him until eventually he leaves. But he says, you can go anywhere you want, but not into this one room. And the story is about how this girl works up to going into that room she's forbidden to enter, what she finds there and how she escapes it. Wonderful. And I'd love you to give us a little sample, please. Pleasure. A bluebeard among the bluebirds. One. In the long before, when stones were water and trees could walk, birds and humans spoke the same language and none as believed as the bluebird. Some say that if you follow the song of the bluebird as it circles, leaving scratch marks on the sky, soaring above the valleys and beyond the river lip curl, it would take you to a town called austerity, shrouded in mist, clinging by its fingernails to the edge of the world, its grey buildings slumped, huddled and thoughtful above streets, narrow and thin-lipped, with pavements like conveyor belts, feeding citizens to the smoking, factories past, flashing advertising, selling the perfect body, perfect skin, perfect smile, teeth like white picket fences. Two. The birds were a tornado in blue high above the head of a girl, and far below them, 
Martha Thinbone, who did not understand the language of birds, walked the conveyor belt to school. Martha was like the town that birthed her. Her body grew to fit the cracks, thin and surprising her mouth, an earthquake she was scared to open in case the world fell in, fourteen years old, in a body that did not quite fit. Martha was itchy skin and elbows, awkward and apologetic her clothes, ill and unbranded, her trainers bought from the street market, her hair, a pet she set free on Sundays. Martha was coloured outside of the lines, dragging her heavy shadow to school by the hand, where they would both be ignored, sitting beside each other in class, sharing a ghost lunch, throwing bowls at empty spaces. Martha was an invisible girl. Sometimes she wondered if she was there at all. Three. Bluebeard balanced long legged in the centre of the web, unravelling threads, commenting and baiting, reeling in followers, spooling the internet from invisible spinnerets, waiting. Thank you so much for that. So what is it that drew you to this story in the first place? For me, Bluebird is a story that began all stories. Because as I was sitting there in class, all I could think about was this forbidden room. And for me, every book is a forbidden room. As a writer, everything I write is a forbidden room. And so as soon as you asked me to do it, that's where my brain instinctively went. My heart went to this forbidden and sacred kind of space. So that's what kind of really drew me to it. But... um, as well, it's about women and it's about, it's about the exploitation of women. And it's about um, how women confront that and how they change things. And I wanted that to be reflected in my writing too. It was really interesting reading and listening to your work and being reminded so viscerally that these stories that we're told when we're young, that stay with us throughout our lives, are so often about children and teenagers. And I got a real sense from your work of, of of just what it was just what it was like to be 14 and to have that kind of sense of possibility and terror raging through you absolutely it's that contradiction as you say the contradiction between terror and and bravery which i try to sum up in the bluebird um story the bluebird the bluebeard bluebird story <laughs> um yeah i mean as I was writing it, I went. I wrote her as younger to begin with because that was the time of puberty for me at 12 years old when the world radically changed, when um, I came out as kind of gay at that age um, and at the same time as coming out, all the doors shut. So all of that is a kind of subtext to the piece as well, is how do you find your body? How do you find your place in the world um, as an independent, strong woman? And most of us, well, we don't start that way. Um, so throughout the course of this poem story, um, I just try to explore the ways in which she she finds herself a bit. But it's also a piece about friendship and about women's friendship. Your piece takes this ancient French fairy tale and rips it out of its setting and places it right here in our digital age. So what was the idea behind embedding it in the technologies that we use today? I think because um, 
technology that you use today, as well as freeing us, is, is kind of quite a restrictive and dangerous space as well, particularly for children and young people. And so, as I've said previously, I was drawn to this forbidden room and I was thinking, well, what is forbidden? What would be the equivalent in today's world? And in the 21st century, the forbidden room is on the dark web. It's on the internet, not necessarily even the dark web. So for me, Bluebeard became a cautionary tale about the way we're herded on social media, the way children and particularly girls and young women are targeted on social media, um, and try to transport it into that space. So like I said, the forbidden room is a kind of chat room, and it just seemed logical to me that this is where we should go. Joel, it was wonderful to talk to you. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolute pleasure. Thank you, Ellen. They talk of their lives back home, who they once were, what they gave up. I'm joined now in our virtual studio by Inua Ellums. He's a playwright and performer, a graphic artist, a designer, and a multi-award winning poet. His poetry books include 13 Fairy Negro Tales and Candy Coated Unicorn and Converse All Stars and The Wire-Headed Heathen. His plays include Black T-Shirt Collection, The 14th Tale, Barbershop Chronicles, and Three Sisters. Inua, welcome. Hi, hello. It is so great to have you back on the show. Could you please tell us a little bit about the story that you chose to rewrite for us? Um, I chose to rewrite the Greek myth of Icarus, the story about a boy who flew too close to the sun. Um, Icarus was the son of an inventor called Daedalus who was imprisoned on, on an island, him and, and Icarus were. And in order to escape the island, um, his father had to build a contraption and he built a pair of wings made of wax and feathers. And um, Icarus put on this contraption and, and flew off the island, but his father warned him not to fly too close to the sun, else the sun would max the wings, would melt the wings, sorry, and not too 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 low to the sea, else the sea would make the wings heavy, would wet the wings and pull him down. And Icarus sort of ignores his father on both crowd on, on both um, fronts, and the story ends tragically. So um yeah, the myth of Icarus is what I chose to rewrite. I'd love it if you could read us a little sample. Um, yes. This is an excerpt from Icarus, my retelling of the myth of Icarus. This kid they called Rust. Her hair was a bush of clumps, her gaze stiff as stumps, and among kids of the island, the strong ones, the beautiful, musically gifted, the sprinters, the crybabies, she was the brave one. Everything an adventure should dig through landfills that line the island, seeking gifts of clumped goods, fist-sized bits of clockwork metal, should scurry back to a father's workshop, a scorched tent where he made repairs or tinkered with his engineering head. The camp dwellers always brought work, and as Malik fixed their phones or radios, candles flickering like small gods, they talk of their lives back home who they once were, what they gave up. Rust would watch wide-eyed as he worked, suck up all she could of his skill, nosedive into landfills looking to build her works. Unless a worthy distraction appeared, nothing stopped her search. Today, this was it. A small cart, four wheels, clear path, downhill, backwind, an audience, the thrill. Thank you so much. 
So the story of Icarus is something that has been told and retold a thousand times in a thousand different ways. That what is it about the story that drew you to it particularly? I try to think about people in our present day who are imprisoned on an island and reasons for flight, for migration, and all of that um, led me to find parallels with the with the global migration narrative, which a lot of people call crisis, that I don't think is a crisis. It's just lots of people in movement at the time of you know both socioeconomical and climate upheaval. And, um, and I chose to recast Icarus in that setting, where instead of um, this boy is a young woman, a young girl, and her family, including her father, who is a tinkerer, an inventor, is in prison on this island, and they have to desperately leave. And, um, and um, Rust um, does everything she can to do so, and she ends up um, building, tinkering with her own thing and creates this, this flight. So I think I saw the potential to create parallels between this Greek myth and with the contemporary um, politics. And it's also because Greece itself as an island is real, plays a key factor in the, in the global migration. Lots of migrants and immigrants um, come to Greece and is often their first entry port into Europe. And I just wanted to talk about and draw parallels between, between um, ancient Greece and contemporary Greece. How do you think the story of Icarus helps us reimagine some of the narratives about migration and refugees that we're used to hearing? I think um, it's an old story about a young boy which we empathize with, we understand, we sympathize with. And I'm just placing um, a young woman of, in that same space. I'm hoping that those who are familiar with Icarus fam- become familiar with her plight and see their journeys as the same thing, just in a different era. They both face the same things. They both have families who really want them to live, who will go to incredible lengths um, to achieve um, a better life for the pursuit of happiness, and both of them fail. And I'm hoping in doing so, we begin to ask why these same patterns um, of flight and disaster happen over and over again, and what we can do to avert that, to stop that happening. Absolutely. And the story of Icarus changes depending on who you ask, right? Some people mm. will tell you it's a story of extreme foolishness and not listening to advice. And other people will s- tell you that it's a story of extreme bravery and defying the odds. And some people will tell you that it's kind of both of those things. And that seems to have a lot of parallels with the way in which some people talk about um people forced from their homes yeah um i I think so i think so like all great stories is open to interpretation right and and you understand or you gather or you garner what you think the morals or the ethical sort of imperative behind the construction of the story and the message of the story like it's it's us it's up for us to do so and um and i think it's even more important that we tell stories like this in an increasingly binary world where we, 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 we let the reader make up their minds, but at the heart of it, we put a character, a person, a figure who's real, who feels three-dimensional, whose emotions are easily relatable, and who mirror us as just everyday human beings who are not pushed to extremes like that. So that um, invites us to, to walk in their shoes, or in this, in this case, to step into um, Icarus's wings and to see what pushes us to flight. What would you want a reader to take away from this retelling? I guess that how perhaps how 
how easy her death was to be avoided, how, um, how the necessity isn't necessary, and the necessity for flight, to risk herself, to risk her life, etc. All those immigrants stranded on an island um, isn't a peril that is without um, avoidance, you know? I, I think I'd want um, the people reading this, the young people particularly, to think, why is this happening? Why are the adults, the Coast Guards, just on the boats watching this lady tumble into the sea? Why why, why is this happening in the first, in the first place? Why are there Coast Guards with snipers um, watching this girl fly? Why, why aren't they, why, why is any of this happening? I think that's the question that, I, that I'd like um, readers um, to ask. Why is this happening and, why and how can we stop it from, from happening? Your work engages with fairy tales and myths over and over again. So what is it that keeps drawing you back to these kinds of traditional stories? Because they feel primal, they feel old, yet they feel um, relevant over and over again. And um, there's this um, Afrofuturist um, um, symbol. Well, it's 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 from Ghana, and it's called the Sankofa symbol. But for me, it has Afrofuturist repercussions um, and ramifications and echoes. And it's of a, of a bird walking forward whilst looking back. And I think um, that is how humanity should always um, venture towards the future. So always to think about what we can um, what we can draw from, you know, the so- the shoulders of giants, from the ancestors who've come who've come before us, because there is nothing new under the sun. We're just creating faster things to destroy ourselves. Um, and the human brain, and the same thing that makes us human beings, our you know, our senses, our emotions, none of those have necessarily become sophisticated. Our brains haven't gotten larger. We've just created more difficult things and a more hostile world in which to be human. And I think um, I keep going on returning to those myths because and those fairy tales because the inner workings of them are still are still relevant, and they still draw us to the extremes of our emotions, of our capabilities, and 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 force us to reckon with things. And however fast the world gets, however binary it becomes, um, we can't we can't escape ourselves. And going back to those fairy tales is a way to reaffirm those things. This is who we were, this is who we are, we were, who we are, and who we will continue to be, whether we agree with it or not. Inua, thank you so much. It is always such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's it for now from us. You've heard from Inua Ellams, Helen Mort, Will Harris, Joelle Taylor, and Malika Booker. Pick up your copy of Bedtime Stories for the End of the World to read more from them and from the wonderful Kayo Chingonyi, all brought to life by Inquisitive's illustrations. You can find a link to buy the book in the show notes for this podcast. You can keep up with all of our work by going to at GoodbyeWorldPod on Twitter and listen to all our previous episodes at endofthewordpodcast.com. And we'll be back to bring you season three in spring 2021. This episode was produced by Tom McAndrew and audio produced and recorded by Oliver Fox. Special thanks go to Maya Bosworth and the good folk at Studio Press, especially Helen Wicks and Frankie Jones. Thanks as well to Arts Council England for funding series one and two and spread the word for supporting us every step of the way. And thank you, of course, to Inquisitive, without whom this book would not have been possible. I've been your host, Eleanor Penny. And to all you out there at the end of the world, sweet dreams and thanks for listening.